In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Well, we promised it, and now we deliver. Our newest release from Sleepless Sanctuary Publishing is The Rat King, a horror collection by L.P. Hernandez. L.P.'s name will be familiar with any listener of the show. As the author of chilling stories such as A Sundown Town, The Hole in the Great Grass Sea, and our season 16 finale, They Have Suffered, among many other fan favorites. The Rat King, a horror collection, is available now in ebook and paperback form, and links to purchase can be found in the show notes. We're very proud to welcome LP to the Sleepless Sanctuary family. The Rat King, a horror collection, marks the third and final Sleepless Sanctuary publishing release of 2021. Alongside S.H. Cooper's haunting gothic novella, Inheriting Her Ghosts, and Marcus Demanda's terrifying collection, Hide the Knives. Stay tuned for new Sleepless Sanctuary releases and announcements in 2022, including details on how you can become involved with the Sanctuary. But for now, well, we'll get on with the show. In our first tale, we find ourselves transported back to 1930 America, the Great Depression. Times are bad. People are hungry. But in this tale, shared with us by author Christopher Alexander, one town has a rather unique way of coping. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Nicole Goodnight, and Aaron Lillis. So hang out with the neighbors, gather around the pot in the town square, and maybe partake in some soup. Year was 1931. The town of Halens was poor in them days. Real poor. Not a road was paved and not a belly was full. We bartered and scraped and scrounged and made it work. I was a boy of ten at the time. And I can still remember the old tin shed in the town square. The fire was always going, and the big old cast iron pot was always bubbling. 
People put their scraps in that pot, and the poorest among us could always get a bowl of slop. Best time to eat was when it got low. Get the dregs on the bottom. Little pieces of meat shaved off the bone of some skinny animal. Some beans. Maybe even a bite or two of tater. That was good. Set heavy on the stomach. My daddy had gone on to glory. My mama worked nights doing the washing at some hotel a bit up the road. When the sun went down, I was supposed to be inside. Usually wasn't, though. Especially during them hot summer months. We didn't worry about bad people the way I have to now. So I'd go on out and into the square by myself and sit with the people that showed up. Mostly old people, poor and lonely, and wanting to talk. It was late July, hot and thick, pitch dark and cloudy. The orange firelight cut the darkness in jagged shapes all around the shed, and I was sitting on an old log a few yards off. There were little groups of people here and there, but no one I especially wanted to see. I was hoping old James Thompson would show up. He told me stories about the war. He never turned up that night, but a stranger did. I looked up, and she was there. A girl, a couple years older than me, dressed all in white, except for a red handkerchief around her throat. Her skin was about the palest thing I'd ever seen or ever seen since. Moonlight white, I'd call it. I'm Nora. Sam, you new around here? Ain't seen you before. No, I've been here for quite a while. I'm not much for visiting, though. I didn't know what to make of that. Halens was a small place. You didn't have to be much for visiting for people to know who you were and for there to be a fair amount of gossip besides. Do you read? Read? Hey, of course I read. She smiled. Oh, I don't mean funny books. At that, I just shrugged. She laughed. <laughs> I so like little boys. It wasn't what she said, but how she said it, as the saying goes. It made me wince. Like how one might get startled if they'd been playing with a rifle they thought wasn't loaded, but then found out it was. And cute. At ten years old, I was many things, but I'd be damned if I was going to be called cute. I gritted my teeth and stood up to leave. I wanted to give her a good punch, but daddy or no daddy, my mama had done a good enough job that I knew better. That is to say, if I'd done anything of the sort, mama would have taken a strap to my ass. I dusted the rear end of my jeans with a couple of slaps and began to leave. Stay and talk. I need to go to bed. Chores in the morning. She nodded. Mr. Helper, you are. Good, that's good. I'll tell you what. How'd you like to earn a quarter? A quarter? Unheard of money to a ten-year-old in them days. Bullshit. I began to turn away. Look here. I turned back to see her holding up a coin. It flickered silver in the firelight. God help me. I wanted that money. I walked back towards her. All right. What do you want me to do? No, nothing all that much. Just go to my house and fetch my umbrella. I think it's going to rain later. I live out on King Road. My house is right beside that bridge that goes over Locust Creek. At that, I grimaced. Ain't no damn house beside that bridge. What the hell are you trying to pull? 
I figured she'd act shocked and scandalized at my language, but she didn't. She just threw her head back and laughed. <laughs> On either side of the red handkerchief, I could see dark blue veins running the length of her neck. I didn't like it. Made me feel like I was in the presence of some cold-blooded animal. A lizard or a snake. You are a spunky thing, aren't you? I promise you there's a house there, and my umbrella's on the front porch. If you go fetch it, I'll give you this quarter. If you don't want to, or you're too scared, that's fine. I understand. Shit, I ain't scared. I just don't like stepping in bullshit. She didn't respond. She just looked me straight in the eye and smiled. Fine, but you better not whinge on the quarter. Strap or no, I might just knock you down if you do. <laughs> she laughed again and waved me away. I turned and began to walk down Harlan's Road. When I was far enough away so I knew she couldn't see me, I took off running. It was about a mile to that bridge, and I figured I could go and be back quick as a whip. I couldn't figure it, though. I knew there weren't no house by that bridge, or thought I did. I figured I could be wrong. I didn't go down King Road all that much. Maybe I wasn't thinking straight. A few minutes later, I turned off of Harlan's and onto King. I heard the squeaking of bats overhead. Night hunters thinning the herd of mosquito that ravaged Harlan's with all its lazy creeks and ponds and still muddy waters. Five minutes later, I was at the bridge. And I'll be damned if there wasn't a house. A little two-story farmhouse whitewashed with a long green porch, rocking chairs and a swinging bench. Yellow candlelight flickered in the windows, and as I got closer, I could see the umbrella propped up beside the front door. I felt nervous, but I crept up the steps and snatched the umbrella, and then turned quickly to leave. I didn't make it back off the porch, though. A small shaft of moonlight had found its way through the clouds, the light flickered along the ground as wisps of mist moved quickly across the moon. I looked up at the swirling clouds, and they looked like a face. A long, thin face with flat features, gaping pools for eyes, and a snub nose like a snake. But then the clouds continued on past, and the face was gone, and I stood there just staring, almost hypnotized by the flickering light. Without thinking, I made my way over to one of the rocking chairs and sat down. I can't say how long I sat there, but it was a large peal of thunder that brought me back to my senses. Shit, fire! What the hell? I shook myself and stood up. The lightning flashed, and she was standing there. Red scarf pulled up over the bottom portion of her face, like a bandit. She didn't bring the umbrella. I just shook my head. I didn't know what to say. She came forward. But that's fine. She's fine as one. You tried at least. I didn't like the sound of that. I was just about to run when another flash of lightning made me stop. This bolt wasn't a flash in the pan. It was chain lightning that kept coming. Bolt after bolt burned away the night. And I could see her plainly now and there wasn't no scarf over her face. Her mouth and jaw were slathered in blood, thick and dripping off her chin. I screamed and dropped the umbrella and ran, 
As I did, the thunder from all them bolts finally caught up to me. The ground shook, and for a moment I thought hell itself was trying to break through and come crawling out. I ran as hard and as fast as I could, through thick brush and past the trees and into the waters of Locust Creek. It's a shallow, lazy stream, and I nearly ran on top of the water as I made my way across, breathing hard and crying despite myself. A few minutes later, I came out on King Road and kept running for town. I was hoping I could get some help. I was raised tough, hard mama, no daddy, had to be. But I was being chased by something that I knew I couldn't deal with. I knew she was after me. No matter how many times I looked back and didn't see her, but I knew she was there. I came running into town like a streak. The rain had stopped, but I was soaked to the skin, my bare feet bleeding from the hard running on the harder gravel. I pulled up at the shed. No one was there. I looked inside and the stew was roiling under a hot fire. There was a strange scent, thick and almost sweet, but everyone was gone. A voice called out, soft and sweet. It was Nora. I went inside the shed and shut the old tin door. To hell with you! Get the hell on, whatever you are! Now, honey, don't be that way. If I wanted to get you, Hardy would have. Come on out and talk to me. I didn't move, and I won't lie. I was scared shitless. Now, Sam, you come out of there right now, or I'll have to do something neither of us is gonna like. Why the hell you got blood on you? And where are all the damn people? Well, I got blood on me because I was punched in the mouth. The people are gone. Bullshit! Who punched you in the mouth? Dan Caldwin. I thought about that. Old Dan was drunk and an asshole. He might have done it. Fine. Where'd everybody go? In the pot. I didn't know what to make of that. What's that mean, in the pot? <laughs> Wait a damn minute. You mean they're in this pot here? <laughs> I started to laugh. Some fool was pulling one. They'd spooked me good, but I wasn't no damn idiot. I went over to the pot and peeked in. It looked just the same as it always did. Dark slop just a-boiling. I shook my head and turned away, then went out to meet her. The blood was gone off her mouth and she stood in the shaft of orange light that came out the open shed door. Cute. <laughs> cute, cute. Oh, shut the hell up. What are you up to? Where is everybody, really? Don't give me no horse crap about in the damn pot. You ain't gonna make no fool of me. Nora shook her head and reached out her hand. She was holding something. A bright, shiny new dime. I eyed it for a moment then snatched it and backed away. A dime? You said a quarter. And you said you'd bring me the umbrella. Well, you're lucky I'm giving you anything. I shrugged. There was something to that. I turned to leave. It was late and she was weird, and I wanted to get home. Oh, don't go. Stay and talk to me. I might have another little thing you could do. Hell no! It'd be good for you, and your mama. That made me stop. 
What do you know about my mama? Oh, I know a lot. A lot. And I know she'll be back come daylight. A flash of lightning lit the ground at just that moment, and I could see what I hadn't before. Streaks of red all along the wall of the shed that the rain hadn't washed away, and gristle mixed in with it. It was then that I knew. This ain't no joke, is it? Nora shook her head. Old Dan didn't give you one in the mouth either, did he? <laughs> you caught me. I figured I could try and run, but I knew she'd catch me. I'd heard the old saying about making a deal with the devil, and I figured this situation might just be what it was talking about. Nora smiled and winked. Oh, you're clever. You've done sized up your predicament nicely. I didn't know what predicament meant, but I figured I could hazard a guess. Probably meant something like I'd done figured out how much shit I was into. I might have. I don't want to hurt you, I honestly don't, but I do need you for something. And what is that? You little bitch? I just couldn't stay pitiful. Felt wrong on me. <laughs> that got her laughing like a crazy person, and I backed up a little. Sam, do you love your mama? Shit, what the hell kind of question is that? You'd do anything for her, wouldn't you? I didn't like where this was going. Not at all. To hell with you. You leave mama alone. This shit stops now. You had me scared, no damn lie, but I ain't gonna stand for this. <laughs> her laugh stopped, and the sparkle in her eyes went out like a light. She wasn't no pretty girl no more. Her face started to sag, and deep creases began to spread like ice cracking on a lake. She went from maybe ten years old to about a hundred fifty in less than a couple seconds. I've had enough of your lip, you damn little pup. I'll shank you like a bull at the slaughterhouse if I see fit, and there ain't shit you can do about it, little fuck. You say you love your mama? Well, we'll just have to see. She growled the words out like a rabid animal and looked up at the sky as she finished. Lightning blazed again, turning the clouds to fire from east to west. And there, above us, like some ghostly skull, the face was back, pale and hollow. I screamed and ran, but didn't make it ten feet before Nora's hands were on my shoulder. She spun me around like a ragdoll. She was a girl again, bright-eyed and smiling. Sam, 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 calm yourself. I stood as still as stone, looking into her soft green eyes. Couldn't move. Didn't really want to. The rain had turned to a cool mist that made me feel like I was underwater. She let me go. You won't run now, I think. You'll be a good boy. I nodded. What do you want me to do? You're gonna come with me. It'll be a good thing if you do. For both our mamas. What the hell are you? I'm a thing. A person. A person thing. Just like you. Just like you. She turned and made her way towards the shed. Now you just stay right there. I'll be back. She stepped into the shed, partially blocking the orange light. After a moment, I heard a grunt and a crash. 
steam billowed from the open doorway, and I realized what the odor was. It was blood. Boiling blood. Nora had pushed over the pot, spilling the stew. She came walking out slowly, bare feet wading through the steaming slop, but she didn't seem to notice. She came up to me slowly, and then, quick as a copperhead, she grabbed me and dragged me toward the spill. She pulled me into the center of the rank mess. The cool, wet ground had no doubt taken the edge off, but the stew still burned my feet. I thrashed and tore about, but she didn't let go. I might as well have been trying to jerk my arm out of the mouth of a lion. We start here. She began to walk towards the tree line, pulling me along. She spoke over her shoulder as we went. Blood of the masses, love that is young. A walk among the dead, start where you begun. She chanted it a few times, and then stopped right as we entered the trees. It was near pitch dark, but I could see shapes along the ground, lining the path. Shapes that could only be bodies. Did you kill everybody? Mama has to feed. We walked in silence, passing the dead. And I prayed it would stop, that the Lord would just make her disappear. A fog, tainted red, rose up against my scalded feet, and a strong wind ran through the trees. We walked for probably an hour in a wandering way. The moon came out at some point, and I could see the bodies more clearly. Sometimes there was only one or two, but other times there would be a pile naked and stacked like firewood. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. They were all as pale as whitewash and bone thin, more like skeletons overlaid with rawhide than what a few hours ago had been living, breathing people. I felt a bulge in my throat. I wanted to cry. I think Nora knew it. I heard a quiet laugh. I gritted my teeth and kept on walking. After a little while longer, I could see the woods beginning to thin. As we drew closer to the tree line, the fog went from a pale tint to rust-colored, and so thick it made me think of pine sap. The mist caught in my throat, and I coughed. A moment later, we were through, and I was looking at Halens, like we'd never left. Start where we begun. Come along now, Mama's waiting. We walked down dirt streets that now look different. At first, almost imperceptibly, but slowly I understood the change. A grayness lay over the world, but not a shadow to be seen. Everywhere I looked, there was a pale film, more felt than seen, like the world itself had been stabbed into my soul. <laughs> Nora laughed, high and loud and full of honest joy. Oh, you don't know what you don't know. I grew angry in a flash. No shit, you little bitch. I'll kill you! I leapt forward and threw a punch. She took the blow straight to the face without so much as flinching. My hand felt like I'd just struck a brick wall. I shouted and backed away and pain radiated up my arm. Are you finished? She then turned and started walking again. 
I followed with downcast eyes. I knew I was gonna die. Or worse. We passed a few little buildings that made up the town, and finally we stood in front of the old soup shed. There was singing coming from inside. It was a song I knew. It was a voice I knew. I bolted toward the door. The pot was back upright, and the fire was roiling once more. And there was Mama, stirring the pot and singing all the while. She turned slowly, and I nearly screamed. The grayness was there, covering her like a blanket, deep in her eyes. Sammy. She smiled as she reached out to me. In her hand, she held a bowl. A steaming bowl. Eat. What? Mama? Eat, Sammy, eat. You need to change. You need to be like us. I swallowed hard, and when I started to talk, my voice shook. Mama, I ain't ever cussed in front of you. Been just as chaste-mouthed as a preacher on Sunday morning. But, Mama, you must be out of your damned mind. I figured she'd slap me, tell me to mind my mouth. What she did was worse than anything I could figure. <laughs> she laughed, <laughs> like it was all just a big joke. And Nora laughed, too. They laughed and laughed, and Mama came and hugged me. I pulled away, cursing the blue streak. Stop laughing! Stop it now, damn it! You count on like a couple of damn fools, like you got shit for brains! By the end, I was screaming at the top of my lungs, and my fists were clenched. It took them another minute before they finally stopped. They were both wiping tears from their eyes. Oh, Sammy, Sammy, Sammy. You always were a good boy, but you're far too serious. Everything's gonna be all right now. No more worrying all night. No more being dead tired. No more leaving you alone all the time. We're gonna be together. All you need to do is eat up. And all we'll have to do is help feed our mama. What the hell are you talking about? Your mama died of cholera before I was born. She smiled. I'm talking about my new mama. She gave a quick glance skyward. Your new mama. I started to cry. Not ashamed to say it. I think it was right then that I began to suspect my mama might be gone. Replaced by something. I didn't know what. But something not her. I was also crying because I knew I couldn't eat that soup. That damn soup that smelled like sweet copper. That soup that scalded my feet but was somehow back in the pot and boiling over the fire. That soup that they kept saying was for mama. I just knew I'd never be able to eat it. I'm not eating that damn soup. You taught me better than that. I may be a little hellraiser, but I got just enough fear of God to say hell no to that slop. Even as the words came out, thunder roared overhead. I looked up, and there it was again. Right up above us. The face. Like a pale skull, stretched and deformed. And as I watched, the chin began to grow longer reaching for the ground, twisting in wide circles as it came. The winds began to stir, slight at first, but growing stronger by the second. 
A cyclone was brewing. Nora whispered in my ear. Mom's gonna faint. I started to run, but Mama grabbed me by the shoulder. She screamed in my face, teeth clenched and spit flying. Eat the soup! I won't do it! Kill me if you got to, but I won't! Y'all killed everybody! I won't be like that! I swear to God, I won't! Mama's eyes began to squint hard, and they grew wet. At first I thought it was the wind, but it wasn't. Her jaw, clenched in anger, softened, and she began to sob. <laughs> Run, boy! Run! I've gone just as crazy as a shithouse rat! This ain't me! It ain't! <laughs> she was sobbing hard now. Her fist clenched hard by her side, like she was trying to hold on to something. Maybe herself. <laughs> I wrecked the car on my way home tonight. Should have died. I was bleeding bad. But that girl, Nora, she said she could save me. I just have to change. I'd have to be like her. I knew in my soul it wasn't right, but I did it. Chris, forgive me, I did it. I didn't want to leave you. Mama. She waved a hand to hush me up. Run, boy. I'll stop, Nora. You, you run. I love you. And don't look back. I won't be in my right mind for long. With this, she turned from me and faced Nora, who stood ten yards away from her, hands held high, raised toward the face that continued to stretch towards the ground. Nora turned and locked eyes with Mama. I think in that moment she knew my mama's mind was her own again. At least for a little while. They screamed and threw themselves into one another, punching and clawing and fighting. Nora in a rage of bloodlust. My mama fighting to give me time to run for it. I cried as I watched. After a few moments, I realized I was being a dumbass just standing there. Mama was giving herself to save me. I'd half a thought to jump into the mix myself, throw a couple punches, but I had enough sense to know it was useless. The face was coming closer, and I was just me, a young boy with nothing but humanity in my veins. I turned and ran. As I left the town, I heard the whirlwind touch down. The screams of Mama and Nora were cut short and the air was rent by the sound of screeching tin as the shed was ripped apart. I didn't stop until I couldn't breathe. I had no idea how far I got. A couple miles at least. I turned and looked back, even though my mama told me not to. I couldn't see much. The forest blocked my view. But high up in the sky I could see the face. It was blood red with the rising sun, and as I watched, it slowly faded and was gone.
When you have younger siblings, it can be such a chore when you're called upon to look after them. Especially when it's very frequently. Especially when it's just you and them, alone in a house with increasingly strange goings-on. And in this tale, shared with us by author Matthew Macon, it soon becomes clear that strange could mean deadly. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Kyle Akers, Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, Mick Wingert, Atticus Jackson, and Ellie Hirschman. So don't be close-minded, otherwise you might find yourself opened up to the door people. We lived in a new suburban home in that magical time when middle-class families could afford new suburban homes. For as new as it was, the doors creaked. They'd often swing idly open, sending undulating shrieks throughout the house. In hindsight, I don't know how many of those noises were coincidental. I remember the night when Jasper first looked over at me and said, Phoebe, I'm scared of the door people. We were in the kitchen, and I was about to cook macaroni and cheese. Steam erupted from the pot toward the white stucco ceiling as I lifted the lid and emptied pasta into it. I had already taken pepper and paprika from the spice rack to experiment with a smokier flavor. There were nights when I enjoyed taking care of my brothers, feeling like an adult, even if it was every weekend. After I didn't answer, he tried again. Phoebe? I stirred the pot. What are the door people, Jasper? I don't know. That's why I'm scared. Paul was in the living room, watching TV. Kids still did that back then. We chose from two or three channels and absorbed whatever they showed us. We were broadcast to. I smiled and stepped away from the pot. Okay, do you know anything about them? They open and close doors, and they walk around at night. That's all. A door creaked, and he bristled as if the noise were hurting his ears. From the other room, a cartoon boy genius berated his sister for her stupidity in a pseudo-European accent. Paul's head reared back, then shot forward as he screamed performative laughter at the television. Shut up, Paul! I'm just laughing because it's funny. I pointed my stirring spoon at Jasper, the way I'd seen TV moms do. Stop it. You're older. Act like it. Jasper was supposed to reluctantly apologize to me, then apologize to Paul. But he looked at me with a heavy brow and a raised left lip. An ugly face that made me feel ugly. Ugh, sorry. You aren't mom. I'm still scared. If I was mom, I wouldn't be here, said a nasty voice that wasn't willing to speak aloud yet. Another door creaked, and Jasper shook. I didn't know what to say about this. Because even at nine, Jasper still pretended a lot. He got mad at me when I called it pretending, though. And he'd tell me that I was ruining the game. I decided that if I didn't know how to humor him, I'd say nothing at all. After dinner, he was a tribal hunter again. He used to be naked when he played this game. Dad had convinced him to do it in his underwear by showing him pictures of Tarzan. Still... He made stereotypical Indian noises 
and pretended to shoot his toy bow at anything he could claim was an animal. In reality, he was incapable of actual violence, but he had no qualms about property damage. We were all glad he'd lost the arrows. Paul kept watching TV and laughed as loud as his developing lungs would allow every time he could tell there was supposed to be a joke. And I washed the dishes. Everyone's dishes. That was how it worked. I had to be careful about it, of course. The weekend before, my mother had found scratched dishes when she'd come home. She'd given me that disappointed look because she never yelled. The message was better sent by staring at me when I failed to properly administer this entire house at 13. One of the dishes had been scratched again. I put it on the drying rack before I could do more damage. There was another creaking noise. Jasper froze. I opened my mouth and found myself about to shout at him, so I instead closed it and said nothing. Our parents came home late Sunday night, and another week passed until Friday. Then I cooked, cleaned, and attempted to be a substitute parent as the doors creaked. I didn't want to scare my brother, but every time I opened or closed the door to the bathroom, the hinges screamed at me. The next time he cringed at the noise, I talked to him. This place isn't haunted, Jasper. They built it two years ago. He shook his head. They're door people, not ghosts. Illogical as it was, the fear was infectious. I started staring down hallways and peeking around corners. Why, after all, would the doors be opening and closing this much on their own? I prayed that my parents wouldn't notice Jasper's anxiety when they came home. Thankfully, they never did. There were some things you can count on them for. One night while cooking, I heard thumping upstairs. Someone running down the hallway. I entered the foyer and scanned the second-story balcony. Hello? Jasper? Yeah? I heard his voice behind me from the downstairs bathroom, and Paul was in the living room watching TV. I looked upstairs again. Shadows cast themselves across the ceiling. I turned the upstairs lights on before re-entering the living room. Another week passed. Our parents were there, then gone by the time the Friday bus brought me home. I wondered, as I sat waiting for my brothers, if this was what eighth grade was, and if the expectations would only grow from here. I remembered Dad telling me that in some cultures, 13 meant adult, in the moment after he patted my shoulder, but before he left for work. Late that night as I lay awake, there was a creaking noise too close to my bedroom. I covered my ears and turned over to look at the wall until something touched my back. I turned and saw Jasper standing there, his small eyes sparks in the darkness. They're not that bad. His hand shrunk back. He nodded, then he turned and walked out of the room. Horrible heaving breaths overtook me, giving way to sobs. I didn't bring it up to Jasper, but that night, as Paul watched cartoons again, I saw him lean forward. His shorts rolled up, and a dark mark revealed itself on his thigh. What's that? What's what? I pulled up his shorts. Hey, stop it! Just below his thigh was a black mark in the shape of a crab. Is that a temporary tattoo? 
the door people put it there. I looked up to see Jasper leaning against the doorframe in a way that didn't seem very childlike. I tried to imagine what a TV mom would say, and I couldn't. It's okay. I don't think they're going to hurt us. They're a little mean sometimes, but it's not that bad. I looked again at the crab mark. What do they do that's mean? They move things. Like they'll take your stuff and put it somewhere else. And then when you ask them where it is, they'll just laugh. Okay. But how did they give him this mark? Paul, how did you get that? Paul shrugged with an angry frown. He turned up the volume on the TV. I grabbed the remote and twisted it out of his hands. He squealed and tried to take it back. When he couldn't, he started crying. Jasper ignored the fighting. They do it when you're sleeping. Then he lowered his shirt, and I saw them. Along his collarbone were a series of dog symbols. I realized that these, and the crab, were too perfectly black. They stood out from the skin, rather than blending into its natural color the way a temporary tattoo would. Paul managed to grab the remote, then turn the volume up even higher until it was on full blast. He sneered at me. I ignored him and led Jasper into the foyer to talk. I don't want to play this game. His eyes were vacant. Not a game, but that's all they do. Play games. The door people. Paul has only one mark. Why do you have so many? He shrugged. Okay, Jasper, I don't like this at all. You told me they were mean. They can be. Then he took my hand and started walking. Wait, what are we doing? We should talk to the door people. I don't... I looked back into the living room. What about Paul? He's watching TV. He'll be fine. Let's talk to the door people, Phoebe. You're the only one who hasn't met them. Despite being four years younger, he spoke with a tone of authority, and I went with him. He led me to the closed upstairs bathroom door. Then he knocked on it. Jasper! He knocked again, and it opened a crack. Hi. I looked into the gap. It was too dark in there. Darker than it should have been if all the lights were off. My sister hasn't seen you yet. I think she's scared. The door creaked open, and a man stood in the darkness. My back hit the banister as a man stepped out of the bathroom. He wore a cat costume that looked too real. And as he entered the lit hallway, I realized why. It was made of the skins of cats stitched together, dry and clean as a taxidermied animal. It smelled like someone had tried their hardest to make it not stink like death and hadn't done a great job. The door person looked down the hall one way, then the other. She just wanted to see you. But then the cat man took off running at an odd scampering pace that transitioned from hops to gallops. He rounded a corner into the master bedroom and was gone. See? It's fine. I started hyperventilating. I stared in the direction of the bedroom, trying to process what I'd just seen. Phoebe? I took a slower breath and tried to speak clearly. There are people living in our house? People like that? More of them? Yep. How long have they been here? I don't know. I'd been told not to talk to strangers, but Jasper had broken that rule already. There were multiple of them in the house? What was the expectation here? What was I supposed to do? 
I think they want to be talking animals. Like from a Disney movie. But they're not very good at it. I grabbed his hand and led him back downstairs. But when we got there, I almost screamed and had to hold my hand over my mouth to stop myself. Paul was sitting in front of the TV. On the couch behind him was a man dressed like a dolphin. Its anatopistic arms and legs were covered in rubbery skin, stitched together so desperately that it looked like patchwork. A fake glass eye on the side of the dolphin's head stared at us, even as the door person themselves must have been watching the TV. When Paul did his loud laugh, the dolphin man shrieked and fell over onto the couch, then rolled off to the floor. Paul did his best to ignore him. When the dolphin man almost crashed into him, he inched away. Jasper smiled. They're fun sometimes. But you said they're mean. Yeah, but some of my friends can be mean. Like, Scott and I play pranks on each other all the time. I think that's what they try to do. They just like to have fun. I bit my lip as I studied Jasper's unconcerned smile, and I stepped into the living room. The dolphin man sat up. Scared, girl? He crawled toward me, the flipper on his back jostling with his body's movements. Scared, girl. Scared, girl. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not that scared. The dolphin man stood bully. Let's play a game? Uh, uh, what kind of games do you play? We play many games. Want to play games for brave girls instead of scared ones? I'll... I tried my hardest to give my best brave smile. Okay, sure. Ah. Then he lunged forward and roared. Ah. I flinched back into the foyer. He laughed. Jasper laughed. <laughs> Paul let out one of his screaming laughs. Four doors opened and laughter erupted from them. <laughs> then they slammed shut. The dolphin got in very close, his snout arching over my head. To play the brave girl game... You need to be the brave girl. Do you want to be the brave girl? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. Then we have to put the mark on you. Do you want the horse? I stepped back further to get away from him. Oh, no, no, sorry. I don't want that. The dolphin's entire body drooped forward, his hands dangling toward the ground. You are still not the brave girl. I am. I'm sorry. No, I just don't want the mark. But I am brave. I am. If you want to prove that now, then you must punch the brother. Punch? I looked at Jasper who was turning white. The dolphin man pounded his knuckles into his palm. Punch! Punch the brother! (laughs) Another voice whispered from upstairs. Punch the brother. Like, pretend, right? No! The dolphin man rushed forward and grabbed my hands. I saw his humanoid eyes twinkling beneath the dolphin's snout. 
To be the brave girl, you must punch the brother. I felt something in my chest waver. That's stupid. I don't want to punch Jasper. He shrieked at me, and I backed away further. A stench like dead ocean exuded off him. And I tried to ignore it because he already thought I was a coward, and I wasn't. I took care of Jasper every weekend. I cooked for him and I cleaned. I did every chore while he ran around playing pretend, and while Paul watched TV. And that was brave and admirable, and I was strong. But the desperation behind those thoughts made me feel pathetic. The dolphin man rushed forward, grabbed my hand, and led me into the living room so that I stood in front of Jasper. Now, when I looked at my brother, I felt something hot in the back of my skull, burning down my neck to my upper spine. He stood there, bewildered by the possibility that I'd even be mad, despite the fact that I'd done everything for him. I carried his expectation that I'd keep doing it, forever. Phoebe? I swung my fist and hit him. He staggered back, holding his cheek. A rush of power and satisfaction started in my arms and surged through me. I laughed. (laughs) The dolphin man shrieked with laughter. He fell back against the stairs, then ran up and down them. When he stopped laughing, he'd look down at us from the stairway, then start again. Jasper rubbed his cheek. I could see him trying not to cry. But then he started chuckling, too. And we were all together. He would never apologize. He was nine, and it was beyond him. But between us was a recognition of his ingratitude. And some kind of reconciliation for it. See? Good game, Punch the Brother. (laughs) Now for break the television. Paul looked up. His face wide and open. Another door person came in from the kitchen, dressed in the skin of what looked like a thousand bats. He had symbols that he clashed together. Too much television! Too much television! Paul looked at the Batman, then at me, his eyes pleading. (laughs) Okay, but we can't really break the TV. Boo! Scared girl! A man in a gorilla suit came out of the downstairs bathroom. It looked like he hadn't been able to find glass gorilla eyes, so he'd settled for human ones. Scared girl! Scared boy! He shouted that last part at Jasper, who looked up, still holding his cheek. The gorilla man tapped on the wall as he chanted. Always such good kids! Follow all the rules. Always Always such such good kids. kids. Follow Follow all the rules. rules. And they sang on like that. Always Always such good kids. kids. Follow Follow all the rules. Never start fights. Always good in school. Obeying parents always. Even when they're fools. Always such good kids. Follow all the rules. And I felt it as I chanted, my blood surging to my head. All that anger flowing out and taking on form. And I screamed. 
I shouted and I stomped, and I remembered the first time that I'd been left alone with my brothers. I had been eleven. One of the door people responded by grabbing me. He was one I hadn't seen before, dressed up as a parrot. His dead bird eyes stared down at me as his winged arms led me through a dance. He passed me off to a lizard man, who passed me off to the dolphin man. The whole time they kept chanting. Over the chorus, I heard Paul and Jasper shouting things, but I couldn't make out the words. I was overtaken by an inferno of joyous indignation. Then one of them handed me a baseball bat. I rushed into the living room, almost slipping on the rug the moment before I swung the bat into the TV. Its glass screen burst into sparks, and Paul screamed. Thick curls of noxious smoke rose into the air as I stood there panting, watching as electricity surged one last time in its attempt to create pleasant unreality. The door people let out shrieks that transformed into cackles. Paul backed away as Jasper put a hand over his mouth with wide eyes. I watched them as I panted, but I barely had time to reflect before the parrot man grabbed the bat and swung it down at the top of the TV, denting it. The cat man from before rushed him, and they fought over it for a moment before the cat man fully grabbed the bat, then continued crushing the TV, reducing it to a dented husk of itself as he giggled. Paul stood and wiped the tears from his eyes. As he watched the bludgeon TV spurt sparks, he let out a giggle too. Soon we were all cheering and howling at the pathetic husk as the cat man bashed it as if it were a piñata. They handed Paul the bat, and he started hitting it himself. I wanted to wait in line, but then Jasper jumped on me and started clawing at my face while hooting as the door people shouted for us to fight. In the back of my mind was a panicked concern over whether this was just a game, but it'd just make everything less fun to voice at. So I fought back. The door people screeched as we rolled on the floor. Jasper's hands and feet jabbed at me, and I kicked back until he yelped with me on top of him. Just as I was about to stop, I felt someone tapping on my back as if it were a drum, and I was overtaken by chuckles as Jasper squealed. The chuckling gave way to full-throated, hearty guffaws as I punched him in the face again, so hard that it forced one of his eyes closed. I scratched him and left red trails on his neck. He yelped and begged me to stop, but I kept sniggering and hitting him. One of the door people leaned down and shouted in his face, Scared! Scared boy! I got up and kicked Jasper one last time as he lay on the ground, whimpering. A few of the door people followed by kicking him after me, and he rolled over, coughing. Then they pulled him to his feet, and patted him on the back. When he looked up, one of them slapped him in the face. Everyone in the room broke out into hysterics, including Paul and I. Jasper tried to produce a chuckle, but tears welled up in his eyes as he let out forced, ugly sounds that barely resembled laughter. One of the door people leaned forward and whispered into his ear. He nodded, looked at me, and smiled. Thank you for showing me that I was the scared boy. 
<laughs> Jasper wiped his eyes. I want to be brave, just like Paul and Phoebe. The gorilla man slapped him hard on the back. We fix it. Coming to the doors. The doors? The brave girl can come too. Into the doors. We were all ushered away from Paul, who kept shrieking and hammering the bat against the TV as he cackled like the mad scientist that he'd seen on it. The door people led Jasper and I to the downstairs closet and swung the door open. It was dark inside, like the bathroom. Too dark. Phoebe? <laughs> yeah? I know I said I wanted to be brave, but I don't know what's going on. They've never acted like this before. I'm really scared. I clapped Jasper on the back just the way the door people had, and I tried to ignore what he was saying because it was ruining the game. We all pulled him into the closet, and when we pushed through all the jackets and hats and disorganized boxes, we found ourselves emerging from another doorway. It opened up into a dark room. A candle on a small table barely provided light, and rows of animal faces lined one wall. Rows of animal skin bodysuits lined the other, lying there, chained to an iron stake jutting out of the ground, was a shivering half-starved black dog. One of the door people took a machete-length knife off the wall and put it into Jasper's hand. He closed Jasper's fingers around it and squeezed them to help him make a firm grip. Kill the dog. The dog darted away and sent itself reeling as it pulled its chain suddenly taut. It scrambled on the ground, shooting a terrified look toward Jasper letting out small, whining noises. I remember giggling in that moment at how pathetic it looked. Jasper shook. His lip quivered. Kill the dog. The door person turned to the others and waved his hands like a composer. Kill the dog. Kill the dog. Something caught in my throat as I looked at the knife and at Jasper. The full reality of everything that was happening and about to happen broke through my manic joy. Kill the dog! Kill the dog! Kill the dog! Kill the dog! I took a few deep breaths and found the ecstasy from before. It made the words come easier. Kill the dog! Kill the dog! Jasper looked directly at me, chanting. His face turned white and his lips quivered. Then his grip tightened on the machete, and his face hardened. He turned and stepped forward. The dog lowered its ears and rolled over, showing him its belly in submission. We kept chanting. My fear was a distant and alien thing that I couldn't remember being attached to. All that was left was a sense of playful unity, this joy of chanting with them. As the chorus rose in volume, I shouted with the rest. Kill the dog! Kill the dog! Kill the dog! Kill the dog! Jasper swung the knife down. The dog did not die instantly. It pled, cried, whimpered. The door people kept chanting. As Jasper brought down the knife again, cutting into the dog inefficiently, non-lethally, we all demanded for him to continue. He listened, and he did. We stopped once the dog's body was still. 
and silent. The gorilla man stepped forward. He took the machete from my brother's hands, then put it to the dog's face and cut at it. He skinned its head and neck. Then he took that skin and turned to Jasper. He pushed him down to a kneel as all the door people began to hum. They formed a chorus as a gorilla man put the dog face over Jasper's head. When Jasper stood up again, he was a dog man. He was a door person. Goodbye, Phoebe. Before I could respond, the door people pushed me out of the closet toward the hallway back into my house. None of them followed. When the door slammed shut, I was standing alone. Paul stood at the edge of the stairs, the bat drooping in his hand. Pieces of television had been sent flying out as far as a foyer, and they lay scattered on the ground, taunting me with their need to be cleaned up. Where's Jasper? I opened the door and saw nothing but a closet behind it. I let out a short breath that turned into a guffaw, then a laugh. I pawed through the closet as those noises transformed to a series of whimpers. Where's Jasper? I got up and ran through the house, throwing open and slamming shut every door. I would keep doing it, screaming his name into them, pleading for him to come back, even if it brought the rest of the door people with him. Fine, it's my fault. I would beg the doors for years after, just like Mom and Dad say it is. I'll tell them I was lying the whole time. I'll lie to them and say they were good parents. Or I'll scream the truth at them. I don't care what you need me to do, Jasper. But I'll do it. Please, just come back. I would beg these things of the doors for years. And the doors would never open. But for then, for that night, I gave up and fell into myself. Sobbing. Phoebe? Something new sunk into his voice. An unrehearsed tremor that I'd never heard before. Phoebe? Where's Jasper? Working a dull job you hate can lead to some real misery, a dead-end grind that never ends. And in this tale, shared with us by author Sam S. Aim, we're forced to consider just how much is worth enduring for a paycheck from the supermarket from hell. Performing this tale is Erica Sanderson. Maybe it's best to just put your head down and get on with it. Listen carefully. They're calling for a cleanup. Where? On the aisle. When I was 14, I had a job. And it was shit. It was a job. I was 14, you know. It was shit. This one time, already a really shit day. I was late. Missed the first bus. Second didn't show. Nearly missed the third because someone started a fight in Subway. And then, when I do make it, Sue's not there. 
so I'm stuck with Kevin, who frankly smells of egg. We all know the worst part of customer service is the customers. That's a widely known fact. One old woman thinks we're a bowling alley. Another complained there weren't enough biscuits. Some students broke a fridge, and an eight-year-old vomited in the frozen peas. Funny the things you remember. I get going, though. Keep my head down. Get it done. Don't look up. Don't look at people. Don't even acknowledge they're there. Just cauliflowers. Tick. Sweet corn. Tick. Onions. Pickles. Two-for-one stir-fry. Tick. 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 Do you ever look round a room and think no one else has to go through the things you do? Whinging there aren't enough custard creams. She's old. Nothing to do. Her life's practically over. She's had her go. What has she got to complain about? She's going to die soon. Why make her life my problem? I don't want to deal with this. Before long, I'm stacking cocoa pops and crying at three in the morning, which happens quite a lot. Not that it stops me. I keep going. Rice Krispies, cornflakes, Special K, Frosties, Fruit Loops, Weetabix, box after box after box after box, till I'm stacking kidney beans, own brand, tin after tin after tin after tin, till I drop one, just thud on the floor, right on the corner so it cracks and spills, thick red viscous juice leaking onto the lino, and I can feel it again, the tears welling up, because I can't. I'm the one who's got to clean it up, sort it out, and I just can't keep doing. It has to stop eventually. Just finish. Or end. But I'm bending down anyway. Hand on the tin. Fingers stretching round. That retching feeling in my gut and my eyes. Till I look up ahead of me and... I don't even know how to. It's the aisle. Ahead of me, it... It isn't stopping. See, normally, right? You turn left for bakery, right for frozen goods, straight ahead for the fish counter. But now... This time, it's just... I turn the other way and it's the same. Never stopping. Never ending. Just going on. Forever. I stop. I stand. And for what feels like the first time in my entire life, I breathe. I just... breathe. I open my eyes. I look ahead. And I start walking. Now, the first thing that occurs to me, and you're going to think I'm really sad for this, but the first thing I noticed that crossed my mind is the shelves. They're all the same. All uniform. Completely in line. Perfectly in order. And you can't do that. Trust me, it's not possible. But, well, there they are. Utter perfection. The second thing I noticed is I'd lost time because, you know, normally you can tell, can't you? You've got some idea gun to your head you could hazard a guess but I didn't have a clue I checked my phone the numbers were gone I looked at my watch it was empty blank the hands and face had disappeared so I stopped again I think for a minute I mean I say a minute how could I actually tell but I stopped and I stood and again I just breathed that's when I noticed the third thing It had suddenly got really, really cold. And then I hear it. The whistle. Like someone trying to get your attention. You know. (whistles) Coming from behind me. I turn. Look round. 180 and wham! I'm hit on the back of the head, right in the middle by something soft. 
fleshy. I look back, turn round again, and on the floor there's a tomato. Like, well, a tomato. How else can I describe it? Round, red, plump, bit of pierced skin, leaking juice, like watered down red spilling out onto the white linoleum tiles. So I pick it up. I'm thinking, partly, what the fuck? But there's that other part of my brain that's thinking, I need to clean that up now. It's my job to do it. And the longer I leave it, the worse it's going to get. That's what I'm thinking when I look back down the aisle. And there she is. Red dress. Bald. Skinny. So skinny you'd think she was made of bones. She's far off. Enough so you can't make her out. But I can see her all the same. There's no doubt about it. She's there. And she's looking directly at me. With her body. Entire thing facing towards me. And something shifts in a writhing mass in my hand. I look down, see a chunk of flesh squat onto my palm. I panic, freak, drop it, and a tomato splatters on the white linoleum. I look back up, and she's closer. Not much, but enough. She's definitely taken a step closer. So I start walking again, get going, check behind me. She's there, still there. So I walk faster, pick up the pace, not running but just not walking either. I look back again, but she's not following. She's not. She's standing still, staying where she is, but I don't think she's not. She hasn't moved. Like, she's still no farther back, as as far away as she was before. So I keep walking, try and distract myself, take my mind off it so I look at the shelves, what's on them. And, okay, it's, it's weird, but I hadn't noticed before... They're all the same. Kidney beans. Own brand. 40p. On and on and on and on and on. And I turn around and she's gone. I'm alone. I stop for a moment. Try and take the time to breathe again. Just breathe. I start walking again. Running my hand along the own brand kidney beans. Perfectly stacked. In perfect unison on every clean, white, perfect shelf, leading on down the aisle as far as the eye can see. Never stopping, never ending, going on forever. The aisle hasn't changed, but I have. I know it. I can feel it. In my body, in my blood, in my very being. I'm a different version of myself. But this world is still the same. Still perfect. And I don't want it to change. But I'm not alone anymore. I've heard it. Her. The whistle. Like someone trying to catch my attention. I turn around. And there she is. Red dress. Bald. Thin as bones. The oldest woman I've ever seen. She's facing me. Looking at me. And then she starts to run. I turn and I run. I sprint down the aisle as fast as I can, screaming to get away, grappling at the shells, throwing the tins, hurling them behind me, chucking them in my wake. These noises, these sounds, explosions, rupturing the ground where I trip, I fall, pulling at the shelf and the tin, just one, falls to the ground, lands in front of my face and erupts, explodes like an open sewage pipe, spewing this... I don't even know, but it looks like blood, with meat, bits of flesh, dark, red, juicy throwing up from the floor, on the shelves, on the ceiling, on everything white, till I turn and look, and there she is, 
behind me, on top of me, towering over me, her arm raised, her hand held out, reaching out towards me, to grab, to touch, to tap. That's all she does. She taps me. Then she turns and runs, and I start running after her. I don't even... But I can't stop myself. My legs. They move without my control. My arms. They pump without me stopping them. And I sprint down the aisle after the woman who's shooting off like spurting blood. And... And... My eyes. They're hurting. My eyes are starting to dry. And my legs are starting to ache. My hands... They're starting to tremble and shake. My tongue is feeling like uncooked meat. My teeth are rotating round at the root. My fingernails are falling off. My hair is crawling back into my scalp. My nipples are starting to rot. My shoulder blades are turning themselves inside out. My liver is eating itself. My heart is pumping something acidic. My lungs are shriveling up. My stomach's contracting. My kidneys collapsing. My intestines are caving in and something in my brain, in my head, at the very centre of my being is forgetting who I am. And I'm running. And I'm chasing a woman who looks exactly like me. In the world of horror, we tend to experience crime scenes at their most violent and messy. Blood, viscera, and all manner of other unspeakable ichor drip down those walls. But spare a thought for the poor souls who are required to clean up the places after we move on. And in this tale, shared with us by author Robin Rowan Gallagher, we're introduced to Thomas a man whose work is so grim that he has a hard time even keeping employees for long. I join Eddie Cooper, Dan Zapula, Sarah Thomas, Mike Delgadio, Nicole Doolin, Danielle McRae, Wafia White, and Erica Sanderson in performing this tale. So let's hope the new guy does better than the last guy. Let's hope Thomas is able to take this gore explosion and make it spotless. It is usually men who kill in violent ways, who put the bullet in the gun and the gun to the chests, backs, foreheads, mouths. I think about this while I scrape and clean, while I load hazardous materials into biohazard disposal bins, while I put my hazmat suit on, and again when I take it off. Today, as I scraped and cleaned and loaded, I thought about David, my newest recruit, He might last, I thought. He had a long face, remarkably long and pockmarked. Ex-military, he said, and I believed him. He carried himself like a military man. He'd seen action, he assured me, and was used to violence. I leaned over my desk towards him. This is different. 
This is no heat of the moment, high action kind of stuff. No call of duty kind of thing. This is people in quiet suburbs, high-rise apartments. The messes we clean, they could be me, or your mother, your father, your wife, your kids. I've seen that, too. His eyes met mine, and that was that. I pay in cash. It's not worth it to keep a payroll, do the taxes, go through all the hassle of setting up a permanent staffing when the turnover is so high. My only employee on payroll is Laura, my admin. David was gone before she arrived, so I filled her in. Her hair was, as always, pulled back away from her face to keep it from kinking in the heat. She was wearing a blazer and jeans, a chunky necklace in a color I wouldn't have picked for a bird in a million years. She looked very secretarial, but I knew her feet were bare underneath the desk. He might stick. She raised an eyebrow and quirked the left side of her face. Sure you want him to? I laughed. We hadn't had a lot of luck with staff. (laughs) You know we need the help, right? Unless you want to put on a hazmat suit every so often and help me out. Laura was waving her hands to fend off the suggestion before I even finished speaking. Lord, no. You hire who you gotta hire. I'm sure he's fine. I hope so. These long hours are killing me, and I can't keep hiring them and then losing them. No, best not. The next morning, I turned my blue Honda into the parking lot. The gray concrete of the retail park was flat in the cold morning sun. David was already there. He leaned against the building, one foot flat against the wall, arms folded against his chest. His green flannel shirt seemed almost bright against the darkness of the morning. I slammed my car door shut. Give me five. Laura wasn't there yet, and the offices smelled of cleanser and bleach instead of coffee and wick, which are the aromas that take over once she gets in. Our office is basically a warehouse. We don't accept or get walk-ins. We rarely meet clients in person, even. There's a desk for Laura and one for me. Storage for chemicals and tools. A bathroom with a shower. Staff and customer parking out front and parking out back for the van. Our van is nondescript, discreet, and white. I wash it regularly. It's critical that it look pristine, even though it's not branded. We don't really need to advertise for clients. Honestly, they come looking for us. But a cleaning company has to look spotless. I scoped out today's job last week. Made notes. Yesterday, I stocked the van with what we need. Just the usual chemicals. This job was straightforward. Sometimes I need to bring more equipment, power tools, extra strong chemicals, that kind of thing. Today was just our hazmats, a precaution whenever there is bio-waste. Our masks, latex gloves, scrapers, bleach, oh, and my lunch. We suit up before we go in. 
we park, suit up, go in, assess. Sometimes the report is missing something. We make a plan. We go back in. We clean. It's pretty simple. You do what I say. I laughed and glanced at him. He nodded with a little half-smile. He was nervous, sure, no matter what he'd said. The drive there was quiet, which was a blessing. David looked out the window and I watched the road. The house was on a cul-de-sac, a little bungalow facing south. Our van took up most of the driveway. I opened up the back. It's outfitted like a lab back there, and David and I suited up. The client had FedExed the keys to me, and I shook them out of their envelope. Ready? David nodded. I know I shouldn't, but I can't help looking at the pictures on the walls if they're still there. Often they are. Families don't want to go back in. Nobody wants to go back in until things are cleaned up. A lot of my clients are real estate agents. They've been tasked with selling the place or renting it. So most of my business is through referrals, and once you get in on the referral business, you're golden. Cops pass out my business cards. Realtors refer me to one another. I'm not cheap, but there's no competition. Generally speaking, the longer the bodies lie untouched, the larger the job and the likelier will be called in. The bodies themselves have always been removed, but they've left their marks. Odors, fluids, blood splatter. The paramedics have always come and gone, as have the police, the reporters. Families have already been notified. It's usually quiet, except for the odd creak or the twitch of curtains next door. Sometimes we'll get a talker, a spectator, but it's mostly quiet. This place was a time capsule. Almost nothing changed. The perfect 1950s home. Original appliances built in, a standing freezer, a stand mixer, an electric can opener mounted on the wall. There were two areas, bedroom and bathroom. I could hear Brent the realtor rolling his eyes when he had told me about it. <laughs> My guys, they're gonna gut the place, but they won't touch it until it's been cleaned. Sometimes you don't want to know more, to know much, but you can't help noticing the small blue room the perfect size for a crib and dresser. The big master bedroom with one side of the double closet empty the other holding only suits and ties. The toiletries, one toothbrush, a shaver, cologne, Xanax, the pile of glasses in the office, the smell of whiskey in the air, the brand new appliances in the kitchen, the takeout boxes piled in the garbage, or you get a sense you know without asking. And I knew he'd given her the pills gently, gently, and then slipped her into the bath. Or maybe the bath came first. I don't know why he thought that was a kindness. And the splatter on the wall in the bedroom was his. Nothing much had been done except the removal of the bodies. 
they haven't even drained the tub. So the bathtub had rusted through, fallen through the ceiling into the basement. They'd left the mattress where it lay, and the smell was unbelievable. I surveyed the scene and breathed carefully through my mask. Pretend it's just macaroni and tomato sauce. Whatever works. <clears throat> David grunted and got down to it. He was diligent. I'll give him that. I called Bird after lunch. I like to hear her voice during the day, even if I just get her voicemail. It's low and throaty and calms me down. I know it annoys her sometimes. She's busy, but I do it anyway. I could hear David whistling inside. Hey, honey, it's me. Just calling to say hi. See how your day is. I ain't seen sunshine since. I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom prison. And time keeps dragging on. We fell into a rhythm, David and I. A silent rhythm, but comfortable. David wore, as far as I could tell, the same thing every day. Green flannel shirt, jeans, work boots. He had an army haircut that looked straight out of the 1950s, a flat top. He was slight, but he worked hard. And he was wiry. There was muscle underneath that plaid flannel. My last recruit had been older, a big barrel-chested man in his fifties. I could see it in his eyes the second he walked into the scene. To his credit, he'd gotten through the morning anyway. Then he had torn off his mask, told me he didn't think the job was for him. I'd nodded. It's not for most people. He didn't vomit, which is more than I can say for the guy before him. We don't get many easy jobs. Jobs where the deceased shot himself in the shower. Those don't always require a professional. No. We get the can't-get-it-out-for-the-life-of-me-or-dear-lord-anybody-but-me-clean-this-up kind of jobs. Old folks are the easiest. An old woman, forgotten, dead in her easy chair, fell asleep and didn't wake up, but left a hell of a stink. We get a lot of suicides, gory ones, and a few murders, some accidents. The families are the hardest. David's third weekend, we had a couple. Three kids, a dog, carbon monoxide poisoning. But nobody noticed, or nobody cared. Not the school, not the employers, not the neighbors. They lay there until they were rotting, had rotted, sunk through the carpets and the floors, until the bank came to foreclose. Two bodies, small ones, had seeped through where the couch must have been. My kids always used to fight over the remote. Three weeks on the job and he'd never mentioned a family before. They don't anymore? <laughs> Mine are seven and ten and they still dust up over it. David shook his head. No, they don't anymore. We had to rip the floor up. Not just the carpet, but the boards underneath. 
They'd put a new one in and feature it in the real estate bulletin. New floors, hardwood, a real showpiece. I was grunting and sweating, but not David. We hauled piece after piece out to our skips, dividing into what would have to be burned and what would go to the dump. In the end, it wasn't that much that we had to secure for incineration. How old are your kids? Old enough to know better. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? They usually are. This would have been a week-long job for me on my own. We were making record time, really. Most people I've worked with try to fill the silence, to talk over what happened. David didn't talk too much, so it was pretty quiet. I found myself watching him. He had a quality about him that reminded me of an old picture. Something fuzzy, but also something static. I felt the urge to reach out, touch him, knock against him somehow. Make sure he was really there, that I wasn't alone in that room. So, you're a military man? He nodded and kept working, but feeling my eyes on him, he stopped again. Twenty years. And my old man was the same. Institutions are quick to have us in. Schools, workplaces, apartment buildings. Public spaces are rarely left to fester. And fresh jobs are faster, just bio-waste. The cleanup is easier. And we can fit them in because most of the long-standing jobs don't mind waiting a day or two longer. I could tell this next place was a new one because of the color of the blood and the smell and the way the neighbors' curtains moved. There was a twitchiness to them, a sort of anxiety. Something had happened, and people were hoping to find out what or why before it happened to them, too. I glanced at the description. The cracks in my phone screen so familiar that I could work around them easily. Echo Drive, some office somewhere. The building manager was pacing outside the building when we arrived and strode toward us the second he saw our vehicle. You're here, you're here. She was wearing a suit jacket and what looked like yoga pants. I slammed the van door behind me and held out my hand. Thomas. David waited, almost motionless in the car. Cindy, I'm so happy you were available. I just... She fumbled with her keys. Do you need me to just let you in? Should I wait around, or... You don't need to stay. Most times I'm just mailed the key, or they send somebody. I paused. You don't work here, do you? I did. I... I... I was three doors down. My office adjoins. But I was off yesterday. I was sick. 
I glanced around. You shouldn't be here. I mean, I don't think it's a good idea. For you. And it's not necessary. She jingled her keys some more. Did you know her? Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> Look, give me the keys and I can send them to you later. Just go home. Take some time. We reopen next week, but I can't go home. I can't. The wind was cool down my neck. Sit for a minute. Let's just sit. There's no rush. Come. I led her to a bench on the sidewalk. A lonely tree growing out of a concrete box beside it. We sat in silence for a moment, and she jingled the keys some more in her lap. I could see David's silhouette, a dark outline in the passenger seat. He seemed almost a shadow, but he moved every now and then. I should go. The keys jingled again. I held out my palm. Leave it with me. She hesitated. This is my job, not yours. Go home, sleep, and then go out. Sit somewhere and have a coffee, a cup of tea. Do you need me to give you a lift somewhere? She glanced at the unmarked white van from the corner of her eye. No, I'm... I drove here. Thank you. Is there someone you can call? I'll text my friend. She'll come. She fumbled with her phone while I waited. After her friend's car had swung up and she'd hopped in with a half-wave back at me, I got back in our vehicle, keys in hand. I went back to the van to find David reading the paper. You could have joined us. All right. Let's get a move on. I could hear Laura on the phone, her voice a touch higher than usual. Yes, yes, he's right here. She handed me the phone. Brent. The explanation wasn't necessary. I could tell who Laura was talking to before I heard his gravelly voice over the phone. Brent is married. Not that you'd know. Got something for me? Okay, cut straight to the chase, huh? No, hi Brent. How are you, Brent? How are you, Brent? Hey, you're the best. It's the only reason why I put up with your attitude. <laughs> Grateful bastard. <laughs> I'm the only, and you know it. Brent took a sip of something. It's another resale. It's been sitting for a while. He's a uh, pretty thorough going over. 
I'm your guy. Hey, don't I know it? I'm emailing you the details over now. It's a little further out than your usual, so I'll pay extra for the gas and stuff. But it's right outside that development. That new one for retirees, it's gonna sell for a mint once we fixed it up. Deadline? <laughs> Man, you know me too well, my friend. You know me too well. Look, I got contractors scheduled for the 15th, so uh, two weeks? Reasonable? I glanced at Laura and mouthed. She nodded. No problem. Another sip. That a boy. Sure thing, sir. <laughs> he gargle laughed and hung up. It'll be tight. But doable? She nodded. Definitely doable. Her computer pinged and she rolled her eyes. He doesn't waste any time, does he? Forward it to my phone. I read the file on my lunch. Laura sent it along with a single word. Ghoster. The rest of it was standard. A two-story brick house in a suburb bordering on country. Details. Blood splatter. Bullet holes. Smell. The contact was Brent. It had been sitting five years. Usually, it's only houses somebody has deemed haunted that sit so long. They're never really haunted. More likely, something really bad happened inside. It wasn't cleaned up got worse, house sat vacant and locals got to talking. Sometimes it's squatters or animals who've moved in. I've never in all of my years seen anything that remotely hints at the supernatural. Just sad situations, over and over again. Human beings are bad enough. I don't know why we need to imagine worse things for ourselves. Still, when we get a ghoster... We treat it with a little extra care. Out of respect. You can't believe in ghosts in this business. Not even in a sort of half-ways way. You can believe in sadness, mortality, in the insanity of the world, but you have to be able to go into a building, unafraid, and clean guts off a wall. You can't be looking over your shoulder, and to be honest, I've never felt anything remotely ghost-like. I felt sadness, my own sadness, or anger, my own anger. And when that happens, I take a breather, gasp in fresh air, treat myself to something sweet, a popsicle, a piece of cake. Winter is the best time. The cold numbs the senses and provides a sort of clarity. In, out, done. In, out, done. Wipe, Scrape. Dispose. And most times, I can mostly leave work at work. What I bring home is tax filing, mileage claims, new recruits. Will this one last? The day-to-day -day grind of a business. 
Laura had included a map because the house was a ways out of town. The job was one room, the kitchen. The rest of the house was unaffected. Mainly blood splatter, some bullet holes, nothing too gory. Sometimes that's the way with a ghoster. A local cleaning business that might otherwise do the bio cleanup, if it's minor, sometimes won't touch it. I took a second before I turned the door handle. A couple of slow, quiet breaths. I pulled my shoulder back and let the tension of the day run off me. Then I stepped in. And how are my ladies today? Quiet. They were all out. Upstairs, a TV blared. Verity. She always forgets to turn at least one TV off. I checked my phone. Gone for a walk with the girls, the text popped up. We'll pick up dinner. I kicked my shoes off and wandered down the hallway towards the kitchen. Opened the fridge. Our house was at one time a ghoster. One of my cleanups. But we renovated and decorated and painted and you'd never know it. We changed the layout inside so much that the staircase where he hanged himself was no longer even in the same space, let alone the same set of stairs. It was Brent who hooked me up with the job and later with the sale. Sarge padded on his big feet, nails clicking on the cherry floors. Brand new, a real showpiece. Sarge was the dog version of a ghoster. I'd found him when we went in to do a job. An old lady who'd kicked the bucket. He'd been there for a while, but hadn't sampled the wares, as it were. Although that was likely only because she'd had left so much kibble out for him. Seems she'd just spread it all around the place. By the time he got through it all, she was too far rotted to be appetizing, is my guess. So he was living there with the rats, hiding under the couch she died on. Grim, I know. How could I not take him home? Sergeant, it turned out, was a burzoi, ugly as sin. But he's big, quiet, and loyal. I don't regret taking him home for an instant. We exist in the same space. We slide through things. Sarge won't go for a walk without me, so Bird just leaves him. The two others, the Maltese and the Havanese, one for each daughter, go for walks with the girls, Bird doesn't want a dog for herself. We don't need four. We don't even need one. Sarge was laying on her feet as she said it and stared up at her with his big mournful eyes. She patted him on the top of his head as she said it and upstairs one of the little white dogs barked. Verity is a small girl with tight curls and a tense face. She fights a lot with her sister, who is bright, bubbly, vivacious, and has a mean streak. Verity gets the curls from Bird. I'm not sure where Amy gets the mean streak, but she can cut you with words or a look. Some dark shadow moves through her and then passes, quick as it came. Verity is sweet as pie, 
though quiet. They are both a mystery to me, and both a delight. Once, when she was little, Verity asked me a question. Daddy, will you come to my school and talk about your job? I could almost hear Bird tense her shoulders as her typing slowed. Oh, honey, no, I don't think I can, but Mommy would love to, I'm sure. Can I come with you next month? It's take your daughter to work day. The typing stopped altogether. Sorry, honey bun, my job isn't safe for little girls. Silence stretched on as her brows furrowed. Oh, yes, sweetheart. It's definitely safe for me. She bit into her peanut butter toast. Later, Bird wanted to talk. We should tell them what I do. It'll scare them. Not Amy. She almost laughed. (sighs) No, not that one. But she'll use it to scare Verdie. And she would. That's definitely true. At breakfast the next day, I handed Verity her toast. Sweetheart, you know I do cleaning for my work. Uh Uh-huh. But not like Noella is our cleaner. She eyed me, interested. I clean up things other people don't want to clean up. Sometimes, yes, but mostly other things. Sometimes, sometimes people do bad things, or bad things happen to them, and somebody has to clean up. Like? Like blood. Like accidents. Her eyes widened. Sometimes, yes. And it's not safe because the bad guys can come back? She clutched her toes tightly, frozen slightly. No, no, because of the chemicals, because of the the types of messes I clean. And, And no, sweetheart, the bad guys never come back. When I go clean up, it's usually things that happened a long time ago. Bird came up behind me. It's a good thing to clean these things up. It's a kindness, erasing ugliness, making things safe again. When we first moved in, Glenn came over with a watermelon. He grew it himself. He said a housewarming gift. He peered past Bird's shoulder into the house. Wow, it looks beautiful. Bird eyed the large watermelon dubiously. Thanks. It's heavy. Why don't I bring it in for you? Glenn wandered in, eyes wide. Your contractors did a great job. He shifted the melon on his hip. 
I guess you heard about the uh, previous owners? Yes. Very sad. Very sad. Newlyweds. There was a pause. It doesn't bother you? I noticed the bikes out front. Uh, you have kids? Two. Verdi and Amy. And no, it doesn't bother me. We don't love Glenn. Iris, on the other hand, Iris we love. I see her mumbling to herself whenever I walk up the driveway from work. Sometimes I find things, strange bundles on our porch or on the trunk of my car. Protection spells, Bird says. She claims Iris is some kind of witch doctor, healer, medicine woman. I've been inside her house a few times and she's got walls lined with decorative china plates. They're spotless, so she must spend a lot of time dusting them. She's a diminutive woman with an inward curve to her spine. Her white hair is done up in some sort of twist, and she wears a blue ring on the pinky finger of her left hand. We had formal tea once, and she read tarot for me. We sat underneath the giant crucifix that sat on her mantle. I don't believe in tarot cards, of course, and I don't believe in the Holy Trinity either. She'd eyed me over her cards, gauging my reaction to them before she spoke. A five-card spread. I looked at my teacup. It felt small and breakable in my hands. When I looked back, she was still eyeing me. She put her fingers on the middle card. The wheel. The wheel of fortune. This is your present. A changing direction. You're in for a twist of fate. She moved her hand over to the next card. A man with three staves. She narrowed her eyes. This is the three of wands, your past. You've been exploring the unknown. But it's upside down, so you've not been exploring too deep in times past. Her hands moved again, hitting the next two cards. Three of Pentacles is why you're here. Her hands rested on the last two cards at once. This is your future card. The Emperor. And the Four of Cups. Your potential outcome. I said nothing. She looked down at the cards again and looked up at me. I don't need the cards. Not really. Oh, no? No, nor the tea leaves. There's something coming. You don't believe me now, but it's coming and it's going to follow you home if you don't heed what I'm saying. It'll follow you right up your stairs and into your bed. It'll follow your girls and your wife and that dog you love. And if it do, you lost. So you listen to me, big fellow. 
You stop. You look. And you see it's coming. You run. When I told Bird later, she didn't laugh. Don't mess with that woman. And don't laugh at her either. You take in her garbage bins on Wednesday. You tip your hat to her, you smile, and say hello. Bird's grandma was Creole, and she has a healthy respect for the supernatural. I'm just saying she's a character. Bird's hair was electric with energy. Well, don't. You don't mess with a witch doctor, whether she's good or bad. And that was it. The conversation was over. And I did what she said. I took Iris's bins in. I tipped my hat. I smiled and waved. She never smiled back, but she nodded at me, solemnly, the corners of her mouth turning slightly upwards. Something about her made me feel as though she could see me without my clothes on. David called me the morning we were to work on the ghoster. I'll meet you there. I have an errand to run. No problem, no problem. I prefer driving on my own. It allows me to prepare myself a little better. The house was a refurb, just outside of a newer development. Scrawny spruces were struggling to grow around it. But one day they would tower above the house, cutting it off from the world. The sky was orange-red, the sun pushing its way up softly. My steps sounded loud on the front porch, and the wood creaked beneath my feet. Last year's leaves hadn't been cleared from the deck, and they'd left wet brown stains on the white paint. I caught my own reflection in the glass of the front door. A white figure face hidden behind the hazmat suit. I tucked my gloves under my left armpit, rotated the key ring until I found the right key. It turned noisily in the lock, and the front door creaked open into an empty hallway. Most of the walls were mushroom cap, and all the furniture had been removed. The front room on the left had big bay windows that looked out into the wraparound porch and, beyond that, the trees and the dirt road. It was dark inside, despite all the windows shaded by old growth trees on the south side. The living room faded into a dining room, and a door led from the dining room into a kitchen with more big windows. Through the kitchen windows was a view of the ravine behind the house, and a backyard where a plastic slide was weathering and molding. No neighbors watched. No dogs barked. It was quiet. If it weren't for the blood and the bullet holes, it would have been serene. It was hard to believe it had been sitting for years. The walls in the kitchen had been a pale yellow, and it would have glowed slightly orange in the sunset after dawn. But it looked like a Pollock painting. A deliberate mess. On the wall were two small splatters, Longer drips winding down from the center. A larger splatter was catty-cornered, and the fourth splatter was above me, on the ceiling. 
there were no flies at all. The room seemed lifeless, completely still. The furniture in the kitchen had been removed. The table they had been sitting at, the curtains, anything easy. But the rest of the house had been left undisturbed. I drifted out of the kitchen and back through to the entryway. Through the formal dining room with elegant table and chairs. Through the living room with new couches and TV mounted tastefully to the side. Did they fight over the remote in this house? The staircase was against the wall, and it was lined with family photos left behind. A girl and a boy, both missing teeth. Holding up something. A toy? I squinted in the dark. A woman with the same children posing in front of this house. Sun out from behind a cloud and the three of them squinting into the light. I had to look away. Upstairs was small and spotless. Nothing for us there. On the way back down, my eyes wandered back to the photos. A mosaic of moments gathered together. They were dazzling in their mundanity. But it was dark. Dark in the house. Dark in that stairwell. I breathed deep through my mask unsure of the thing I didn't know I had been looking for. I saw him. The picture on the wall was David. No question. Green plaid shirt, jeans, work boots. David and his family. The wife. The boy. The girl. And from the empty kitchen, I heard a chair scrape back. A fork clatter. Giggles. Raised voices. I've never run so fast. I've never run from any smell, any sight, any scene, the way I ran from that sound. Outside, panting, I tore off my mask and stood on the lawn, looking in through the big bay windows. The house was dark, dusk falling. A mosquito landed on my neck, but I was frozen, watching. Silence and then three loud bangs, one after the other. A long moment. Then a fourth rang out. When I turned into the parking lot on Thursday morning, there was no David waiting. And watched for him, looking to see him standing with one leg propped up against the side of the building. But there was just empty space. Had I ever seen him drive up? He was always just there, as if he'd been waiting all night. Not agitated, not impatient, just waiting. I was almost afraid to ask Laura. 
No David today. She looked up halfway. Hmm? I brushed past her. Never mind. Can you send me a more detailed file on the house from yesterday? There are some things I want to look into. Ask Brent if he'll send it along, will you? She looked up fully. More detailed? Which details do you want? I want whatever he's got. I sat down at my desk and busied myself shifting papers from one pile to the other. Heart racing, I laid my hands flat on the desk. Laura, you met David, right? The new guy? Nope. No TV blaring this time. A quiet house. No Sarge to greet me as I headed up the stairs. Bert? But I knew nobody was there. I was changing. I always change after work. When I thought I could hear a faint whistling from the kitchen. I hear a train coming, coming round the bend. I ain't seen the sunshine since. I don't know when. My breath caught in my throat, hollow and quick. And then a chair scraped back. I heard the clatter of tableware. I braced myself for it. In our final tale, we're introduced to Imogene, confined to one of the last places one wants to be, a hospital. As she sits in her hospital bed, her only means of escapism is gazing out at a house across the way. But in this tale, shared with us by author H.B. Diaz, Imogene takes things one step further, unwilling to settle for merely mental escape. Performing this tale, are Kristen DiMercurio, Sarah Thomas, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. So let's keep this in mind that no matter how torturous it can be when you're stuck in a medical facility, sometimes it's safer than the seemingly inviting place you can see through the window. At least if you're the patient in room 96.
Imogene Beasley, the patient in room 96, secreted herself in a thicket of brambles and waited, with a veil of spider silk clinging to her hair. A quicket chirruped, just once, and was answered by the pip of some unseen rodent within the weeds. No one came for her. They wouldn't even know she was missing for another hour, when Dr. Thomas would walk into her empty room to give her those yellow pills in the tiny paper cup. She had no more use for the antipsychotics than a sparrow did a birdcage. Imogene Beasley was not insane. Only once the sun dragged emaciated shadows out of the thorns did she emerge from her hiding place. Imogene knew that in the middle of these woods, quite alone among the pin oaks and the pines, stood Harwood House. From the barred window of her room, she had spent many an evening gazing at its roof, a tiny speck of mottled gray in a blanket of foliage. As the months languished away, the inhabitants that she imagined became as real to her as Dr. Thomas or Nurse Elaine, the many rooms as vivid as her own. She dreamed of velvet curtains and polished silver candlesticks, of lavish parties for people with expensive cars and beautiful dresses. The children, a boy and a girl of about twelve, would fish in the stream that cut a jagged scar into the otherwise unmarred covering of trees. She was certain that they would offer her sanctuary. Imogene gathered her hospital gown into her fist and splashed through the stream, bare feet aching with cold. She carried on through the current until she reached the bank and then hoisted herself up. Tiny slugs clung to her fingers and she wiped them on her gown. It was there, right where she knew it would be. A recent rainstorm had washed out the drive, leaving deep wounds in the gravel. She skirted these as she approached, happy to breathe in the freshness of the air, happier still that it bore no lingering scent of astringent or urine. The wind brushed away a curtain of willow branches so she could pass. The house slept soundly beneath a blanket of wild ivy, nestled in darkness. No parties had been held here for a long, long time, but the house seemed to prefer it this way. The eaves sagged slightly, as a man's shoulders might after a long sigh, and all of the windows peeked at her from behind splintering shutters. Imogene knew, even before her fingers touched the doorknob, that she belonged to the Harwood house, and now it would belong to her, too. The door opened at her touch, welcoming her with the gentle creaking of its rusted hinges. No one greeted her when she stepped through the threshold. It appeared as though the family she'd imagined had abandoned the place. But surely they would not abandon her. Not after all this time. No, surely not. Colleen? Andrew? Those were her names for the children. But only the echo of her own voice replied, reverberating off the vaulted ceiling and shimmering along the crystal chandelier. Cobwebs blurred its sparkle, and although time had tarnished the silver, Imogene still found it magnificent. How could anyone have left this place? The door closed gently behind her. Imogene did not consider whose hand had done it, only that, for the first time in many years, she did not feel alone. The armchairs and sofas in the parlor hunched beneath their white sheets like hibernating beasts. She watched them, waiting for one of them to breathe, but they remained in deep slumber. Her bare feet disturbed layers of dust as she continued to the staircase. The tiny feet that followed behind left no marks at all. She traced her fingers along the banister, eyes drawn to the gilt-framed mirror at the top of the stairs. Imogene had not seen her face for so long that she could not recall her own features. 
Occasionally, she'd seen a warped version of her reflection on the surface of a steel instrument or in the glass of a rain-patterned window. But these were only glimpses from a moving train. Her heart began to race as she reached the top of the staircase. She didn't immediately look in the mirror. No, she wanted to see it all at once this time, not just a glimpse. When she at last lifted her eyes to it, she saw the crystal chandelier. She saw the banister and the paper that hung in strips from the walls. But she did not see herself. Imogene had no reflection at all. As she stood dumbfounded before the vacant mirror, she felt a child's hand slip into her own. This felt vaguely comforting. He did not appear in the mirror either, so there must be something wrong with it. But when she looked down to smile at him, he had gone, leaving only a smear of blood in her palm. When her fingerprint appeared on the glass, she could not remember touching it. The bloody splotch stretched into a line that soon became a letter, and then another. In moments, they covered every inch of the mirror. Imogene. 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 She stumbled backward, and then she was falling. Her hands grasped for purchase, bones cracked on groaning stairs. Gravity had its way with her. In a crumpled heap at the bottom of the stairs, Imogene thought at first that she must be dead. She knew she should feel pain, but she felt only a gentle vibrating sensation, like the ringing of a church bell. Then, at the edge of vision, already darkened by unconsciousness, Imogene saw a young boy. She whispered, unable to summon strength enough to cry out, Help me. Help me. The boy sounded far away. He shuffled toward her, quickly and with an expression full of anguish. His small face bore a wound so hideous that Imogene screamed. The sound tore from her throat, echoing in the cavernous space and returning to her somehow corrupted. It sounded sickly and shriveled, and she covered her ears. You're not real. He couldn't be. The left side of the child's face had been cleaved, as if by an axe, and it hung from his pale skull on tattered bands of flesh and tendon. He smiled down at her, his remaining eye crinkling around the edges. She shut her eyes tight, shrinking away from it. The boy would not leave. She could hear the blood dripping, dripping onto the marble beside her face. You're not real. I am. I am. When she opened her eyes, the boy was gone. The wound on her forehead dripped blood into a dark puddle on the floor. It trickled into her eyes when she sat, staining the house scarlet. The staircase seemed impossibly long now, the mirror miles away, but its surface appeared clean from her vantage point beneath it. Imogene saw neither her name nor her face in the glass. Welcoming the pain that throbbed inside her skull, she rose and shuffled into the parlor to find a place to rest. Portraits of an unknown family hung on the walls, their frames bowed and discolored with time. None of the people here resembled those she had imagined, except for the girl. Imogene approached the painting slowly. Eyes the color of the sea met hers, and something inside her fell quiet. She knew this girl, knew the hook of her nose and the widow's peak of her hairline. Imogene touched the wound on her scalp. She leaned toward the nameplate beneath the portrait, squinting at the lettering. No, there must be some mistake. She backed away. From her perch in the tower, Imogene had believed she would be welcomed here. But stern faces accused her at every turn, their gazes hard beneath cracked paint. She looked away, ashamed. 
Maybe she'd been wrong about this house all along. Growing wearier by the moment, Imogene found a sofa with clawed feet. She tugged at the dusty sheet to reveal a floral cushion beneath. Little black lilies wound a lazy pattern through fabric the powdery color of a moth's wing. How beautiful. She grasped the sheet with both hands and flung it aside. Imogene screamed. The boy sat before her on the cushion, cross-legged and clutching a sheet of newspaper in his little hand. Who are you? Who are you? I'm... But she could not answer. Imogene covered him again, but the fabric settled onto the sofa, as if there were nothing beneath it at all. The newspaper fluttered out onto the floor. She picked it up and read the headline, her fingers leaving blood on the page. Local boy slaughtered by deranged sister. Town outraged at insanity plea. The photograph of the suspect gave Imogene pause. It was the girl in the portrait on the wall. If only a withered husk of her. Sunken cheeks and cracked lips lent her the appearance of one on the verge of death. But there was something of Imogene's mother in the large eyes and wispy blonde hair. A knock on the wall, behind the portraits. The family patriarch, a man with jaundiced skin and a beard that seemed alive even in acrylic, stared down at her from his place above the fireplace mantel. His gaze so malevolent that she ran from the room. One of the portraits crashed to the floor. The frame splintering against the marble, she did not need to turn back to know which of the paintings had been cast out. She had been cast out. Who are you? It's not real. Imogene wished she were back in her room, tucked safely beneath the scratchy sheets, little yellow pills in the white cup beside her bed. Yes, that was it. She would just go back. Dr. Thomas must be worried about her. She flew to the grand front door, but the knob would not turn. It rattled in her hand. Footsteps sounded from the parlor, growing nearer every moment. Imogene could not bring herself to turn around. She pounded on the door until her hands ached, tears streaming down her face. And then, all at once, the door opened, and she fell into Dr. Thomas's arms. She clutched his white coat. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We thought you might have come here. She didn't understand what he meant. The doctor pulled her away and lifted her chin with his finger, as if she were made of paper. Time to go, Imogene. Dr. Thomas led her away and the door shut gently behind them. Imogene felt the house inside of her, even as it fell away into the forest. She felt its rats gnawing inside her ears, felt its cobwebs inside her lungs, and its crystal chandelier shimmering behind her eyes. She belonged to it, after all. She always had. Imogene Beasley, the patient in room 96, was not insane. As she swallowed the yellow pills in the white paper cup, the spirits of Harwood House settled back into the shadows and waited for her to come home.
As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace no sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.